it's something I think aspirational for an artist to be able to like make a gesture, make a thing that is really broad, that allows so much to be communicated. And because of that, I guess, it just gives you so much back. I think that's something one should aspire to as an artist. This is Studio Confessions, the art podcast. I am your host, Luis Martin, the art engineer. Listen in for conversation with artists and creatives alike as we talk about their creative practice and what moves them. Let me share my wax poetic monologues and how to activate your creativity to live an inspired and more beautiful life. That's right, I said beautiful. Welcome to the studio. I'm glad you're here. Thank you for coming. Thank and, you for inviting uh, me. Having this conversation with me. What's your first art memory? I mean, that's hard to say because when I think of like art that I'm making, if I think about, you know, I think you have sort of like a bank of memories that you always go to in art making. And when I think of that, like probably the earliest thing is watching the movie Gigi with my sister. And there's like the room, If you have you ever seen Gigi? The room that is like the grandmother's house, um, that sort of red room yeah. that's kind of based on a Matisse painting. I mean, I think that comes into my work all the time and into my life. You're wearing uh, the color now? <laughs> and then also, I guess, not long after that, I remember um, being at Walden Books. Mm. I've actually written about this in, in a zine. I remember Walden Books. And there's a Walden Books in Park Lane Mall in Reno, Nevada. And um, there was a book of David Hockney posters and and I was just like, oh my God, look at this guy who's making these pictures of like naked men in bed together and in showers together. And then like, and all these other sort of illusions that I wouldn't get to later. And, but I was just obsessed with this book. Like I would go to Walden Books just to look at it. And then I actually asked for it for Christmas and somehow got it. And I still, I still refer to that book. It's still like in my library and I still love it. Wow, that's great. And I got that, I mean, I guess I was in high school, maybe, early high school. Going so, back to Gigi and the color red, do you find that you, and actually to all of these stories, do those stories kind of play out in your work? Through color, texture? I mean, or? I think that there's definitely color connections through everything. I also think that I'm very interested in places. Like I'm interested in what happens in a place. How do you remember it? How do you how do you re-experience it? And how do you describe it? And I think when I think a lot about my paint the paintings I'm making right now or the zines I'm making right now. There is a lot of, of sort of trying to like, I don't know, say something about memory, re-experience something, and specifically sort of like look at a, a place and try to capture like this little thing happened at this place at a time. And though it is an instant and doesn't really have significance of its own, like somehow pointing at it makes it meaningful 
and but it's a meaning that is very open and you can like enter it easily you can take what you want from it you can bring what you want to it um and i think that i also just try to vanish then from that as well like i don't i don't ever want to be i don't want people to think about me when they're looking at my work even though all my work is about me in a way. <laughs> sure, yeah. They're not selfies, huh? Um, what work are you working on now? What are your paintings? Um, work? So you're also a writer, right? I also, I mean, I, you know, when I really started having a serious um, studio practice, I would, um, I would never say I was an artist. I'd be like, oh, I'm a painter or... On a bad day, I'd be like, I'm a dabbler. <laughs> <laughs> um, but, and it takes a, a kind of um, chutzpah to get to the point to where you're like, oh, I am an artist. When did you get to that? I don't know. Um, it's been a while, but I, I think that, uh, I think it was my, at the time, my boyfriend who was like, you just need to be able to call yourself an artist. This is like, what you're spending your time doing and you just need to call yourself that um which is probably one of the best pieces of advice he ever gave me um and i we were talking about mentors earlier and i had i have a friend who was making really interesting work and this is a couple years ago and i kind of gave him that same advice he wasn't i was like you know you're an artist you have to like call yourself an artist because what you're doing is making really good art, and it's, in my opinion, better than a lot of art being made by artists. So just own it. Um, Where do you think that comes from? That block? That I mean, because I... um, it's a, I don't know. I would like to say, in an ideal world, it comes from realizing there's a lot of responsibility in being an artist. Oh wow! And like. It's like, I wouldn't call myself a doctor because I'm not going to save your life. <laughs> but um, in that vein, I feel like art has saved many lives. I was going to say, me, I was going to say, I was actually formulating that sentence in my mind. I was like, that is way too pretentious. I can't say it. I can't say it. Um, I've saved my own life a couple of times. Yeah. Maybe. That's a beautiful statement, though. But, but um, now I have this thing with, like, although I do a lot of writing, I don't, I, I'm a little hesitant to call myself a writer. Um, is it the same sense of responsibility? Only the responsibility to writing. Mm. Like, I really care about writing. I care about good writing. I care about beautiful writing. And so to call when, I don't know, I feel like, I don't know. I guess there are lots of bad writers. So, yeah. Did you study <laughs> uh, writing or art in school? I study my, uh, no. <laughs> my my degree is in English and I did do a lot of writing for that I mean I I don't want to go back and look at anything I wrote in college yeah uh, and I guess there was a lot of I took some creative writing classes but I you know what I so I run a book club I've run a book club for 12 years and so there's a lot of reading in my life my sort of attitude about books and art are similar in that I really care about formality. I, mm -hmm. I, I love the formal aspects of both. And hmm. so I think that I'm always kind of like in my own work, whether it's 
my writing or painting or anything, any creative endeavor, I think that I'm aware of what are the formal elements of this and am I getting close to them. So I was going to ask if you found actually the opposite, if you found freedom in the fact that you perhaps didn't study fine art. I think having not studied it and, and that combined with um, an interest in formality is a good combination because I feel that creates a ground for experiment. Yeah. So I've been sort of self-taught mm -hmm. and I've found ways to get things or get to places. But there's also this part of me like, well, do other people do it this way? Fortunately, I think that painting is a very solitary mm -hmm. um, occupation. And so no one sees the way that I do things and I take <laughs> comfort for sure. in that. Uh, I don't know. And I, you know, there there used to be that really great art supply store in the East Village, New York Central, mm -hmm. which is sadly gone. But it was all, I think there was a woman who worked there. I, I don't know her name, but um, she had sort of like a sort of blonde bob and she worked there, I don't know, forever. And she was like my art school. I would go to her and say like, this is what I'm trying to do. And... How do I do it? And yeah, you don't get that advice at Blick, right? With all the young kids behind no, the No, they're like, no, you can't get that advice. I mean, that's the sad thing about you know living in the Amazon generation mm -hmm. is that these places that were very specialized and filled with people that really knew things don't exist anymore. Yeah, uh, especially in a place like New York, where it's just so hard to put up a business and then yeah. staff it and then right. longevity. Um, are you originally from New York? No, I grew up in Sparks, Nevada, which wow. is a little town outside. Of me. I mean, it's not a little town. It's not like Mayberry. It's a <laughs> it's it's a small city outside of Reno, which is also a small city. Sparks. It sounds like magic. What, what, Sparks, what is Sparks like? The local the local joke is Reno is so close to hell you can see sparks. <laughs> I love that. Actually. Um, I don't know. It's I mean it's suburban America. I guess it felt like that. What brought you to New York? grad school, which oh. I dropped out of, but um, I went to NYU for a while and was doing a program in critical thought. How severe? I, I didn't realize how severe it was until I was in it. <laughs> and then... Um, and then you stayed? And then I stayed. Uh, I didn't know where else to go. Yeah. Um, you've been in New York longer than you've been anywhere else? Is that right? Yeah, I've lived in New York. 23 years. I think I just had my 23rd anniversary. New York anniversary. Congratulations. Thank you. Do you feel like a New Yorker? Yeah. I think so. I mean, not being a New Yorker, I don't know what a New Yorker feels like, but I feel um, at home here and I feel kind of authoritative <laughs> sure. about New York. And you know what it is? Is that like, like just like my lamenting the loss of New York Central. I think that if you have come to New York and the New York you came to has gone, then you are somehow a New Yorker because you've seen a life of it vanish. It's a great way of putting it. I've never thought of it that way. I mean, uh, I just thought of that right a now. A few times over, right? So, like, <laughs> we've seen so many New Yorkers come and gone. Yeah. Like, New York's yeah. Gone, come and gone. Yeah. I love that. You're going to have to write that down. We'll make it into a bumper sticker I think sticker it's been recorded. Yes. <laughs> this is why I do this, you know? I, I'm archiving these thoughts, this critical thinking. So we met through... Uh, the New York Queer Zine Fair. 
Can you tell me a little bit how you got involved with that? Like eight years ago, um, my friend Charlie Welch and I, I used to assist him. He's a stylist, a photo, like set stylist, prop stylist. And I used to assist him and we were on a job one day and A.A. Bronson, who at the time was starting the LA Art Book Fair, had put out a sort of online message that there were places available still for the first LA Art Book Fair. And Charlie and I were like, oh, we should get a table. So we wrote back and we got this table at the LA Art Book Fair in the zine tent. And we were like, okay, we're gonna have to make a zine now. And we had, we're both sort of interested in zine making and the zine world. So we started making this um, zine called Nose Gay, um, which was sort of a I don't know, funny little loose leaf zine that was about, I guess in a way it was about the preservation of gay culture. Like we had this idea that like little elements of gay culture that could easily be lost. Like, like do people know who Paul Lind is? you know, at a certain age, and yeah. like, so let's make something about Paul Lind, or like, um, Linda Lavin was another topic, or whatever. So we had done that for a couple of years, and because it was, it was unbound, it came just like in an envelope, all loose, it lent itself to the idea of being put up on a wall, and the guys at BGSQD, who have been very supportive of, of the zine fair, and of me, personally decided to give us an exhibition so we had an exhibition of nose gay and they had said oh is there any programming that you guys could come up with at that point we had done the LA art book fair and the New York art book fair a couple times and that year for whatever reason we applied to the New York art book fair and didn't get in and we were like well shit (laughs) <laughs> let's just have our own art book fair really? or our own zine fair. So we threw together this, the New York Queer Zine Fair, which the first iteration was during that exhibition. And it was like a dozen zine makers one night sort of after work, like a Thursday from like <laughs> six to eight or something. And then, um, and it was a sort of a lark and it, but it was cute and went well. And we decided, well, what if we really did this? We kept kind of making it bigger and bigger. And then uh, Charlie moved away from New York. I sort of, this is last year, and I and I initially thought, well, this is dumb. We're not, I'm not going to do this again. I'm not going to do it on my own. But then I became friends with Kel Karpinski, who makes Queer Sailor Zine, who I think is super smart and super interesting, and who I'm so grateful to have as a friend now. And I said to Cal, do you, if I want to continue doing the New York Cuisine Fair, do you want to help me out? And fortunately, I thank God they said yes. And so just a few weeks ago was the fifth New York Cuisine Fair. And I think it was very successful. And I'm pretty sure there's going to be a sixth one. Yes. So I was privileged enough to be one of the participants. And it was such a treat. First, let me tell you, I I don't think I've ever been to a more successful event where not only did the community show up, but people were just genuinely interested. And being that we live in America, when you show up with your wallet, mm. it's significant, right? Yeah, yeah. So people are there to buy, which is nice. Which is not the case usually when you 
put up an art show, right? right. Which is just as much work. Right. <laughs> um, so it was really beautiful to see people really interested in what everybody had to say. Uh, and also the difference in perspectives and identities. I mean, it was just a really nice experience to be part of um, and have absolutely nothing to do with the organization. You mm-hmm. know, logistically, I just got to sit there and meet people. It was heaven. So thank you for doing that. That was great. Thank you for participating. Uh, it was such a treat. But I mean, logistically, it must be such an intense uh, experience. Yeah, it's a lot of work. How do you choose the, the participants? It must um, be difficult. Well, initially, when Charlie and I were doing it at the beginning, we were like, if you want to be in it, you're in it. And we would just find space. We've kind of outgrown that model because we, there's only so much space that we can get. And this year we had more, initially we had more than two applicants for every space. Wow. And then we, um, the Brooklyn Public Library hosted it this year for the first time. And they were abundantly generous. Like, if you are paying taxes that are going to the Brooklyn Public Library, you should feel great about it because they are supporting queer art and artists. I just have to throw that out. Absolutely. Um, but And they gave us some extra space, and so we're able to get more people in. But also, can I just throw in, it didn't feel like it was like this subculture event that was in the back. Like, they really, it was like center stage. Yeah. And yeah, yeah. It, the patrons who were coming to the museum that day were so were just invited to come in. Yeah, and I think that was great. Um, it was really there were the the queer people were who were there who were we were their target, but there was also this sort of like, oh, I was at the green market and I'm right. walking through the library with my bag of kale, and oh, I'm going to pop in and look at the queer zine fair. I saw a lot of kale. <laughs> I really did. Well, yeah. it, is, it is Brooklyn, <laughs> um, so that was great. It's not an easy process, and we, I mean, we reviewed, I think, it was a little more than 100 applications um, at the end of the day. And I'll be honest, there are people that we seek out. There were, like, you know, we went to New York Art Book Fair, Brooklyn Art Book Fair, um, Queer Art, I always get their name wrong, Queer Art Mentorship, um, had a zine fair this year and we would go and say, oh, you know, we're having this fair, you should consider applying. And then there are people who we've just known for years who we like, and then there are people that we've never heard of who apply. And so it's a little, it's, it's complicated because the first level is the application. And if we know your work, then that's great. We know what you're doing and we know what to expect, you know, that you would bring. But then there are people who we didn't know who can put together a really excellent application. Like, I have to say that we had lots of information about what the, what the work that you were making and what it was, and, and that's great. And then there are people who don't make a great application who are like, my name is Sally, and I make a zine, and I've, you know, and that's it, and no information about where to see it or anything. And so that's, that's tricky. So that's like the first level, like, can you put together an application that's compelling? And then there's sort of this next level where it's like, what is your work? Like, what does it look like? Are you doing something that doesn't look like something we've already seen? Are you, are you, and this sounds so pretentious, but like, I mean, zine making is 
a genre, it's a form, and are you taking it somewhere really interesting? Mm -hmm. Are you um, thinking about zines as objects? Are you thinking about, um, you know, what are you thinking about, I guess is the question. And then the other ingredient is we, um, I mean, I always say, like, it'd be very easy to fill a room with white boys making dick mags, which... Which it's is great. <laughs> I mean, I love a white boy with a dick mag. I'm not going to lie. But that's, that's, that's not a representation of the queer community or not a complete. And I guess one can never be complete. So we really try to then say like, oh, this person is talking about, you know, the experience of being queer and Korean. Or this person is talking about being, um, I don't know, whatever whatever other elements of your background are and how does that like coalesce or not with being queer. So we try to get a range of voices, backgrounds, different, you know, diverse people. So there's all these sort of like goals and then there's this like pool of a hundred people and we're like, okay, the, these are the, these are how we hit these marks. It's tricky. It, I can't imagine it's easy. But, I mean, props to you both because it really did feel like a great snapshot of, of the queer community. Thank you. Thank you. There was, like you said, older people with, like, the, the, the dig zines. Mm -hmm. And then there were super young people with, like, uh, Xerox zines. Yeah. I mean, to have everyone in a room that somehow identifies as queer, but we're not using the same labels, we're not identifying with the same idiosync. Yeah. Chrissy's, you know, it, it was such a such a nice meeting place to come together. And you bring up a really good point, which is something I really care about, which is like there are people who are spending the cash and using a great printer and making things that are really slick. Yeah. And then there are people that are like literally like Crayolas yeah. <laughs> on like copy paper. And I love both. And I think that both are super important. Um, I love something made by hand. Um, I love people who are like at their, you know, with their like staplers at their dining room table putting stuff together. Yes. I it was one of my favorite finds was a zine on Yoko Ono. Oh. And another one on Nico, the singer. Uh -huh. uh, both kind of really interesting women and uh, one more problematic than the other. But. Which one do you think is more problematic? <laughs> yeah. I'll let that be a mystery. Because <laughs> I, I have more problems with one of them. Oh, my problems are with Yoko. Why? I, I, you know, like, there's that, <laughs> there's that, um, wait, how's it go? There's this game, like, um, what is one thing that you, everybody likes that you don't? And what is one thing that nobody likes that you do? The one thing that everybody likes that I don't is Yoko Ono. Um. <laughs> but I think the tides have changed. I think more people are joining the Yoko Ono fan club than before. Because before I think she was much more like, ah. people's reactions were like... You know, I just don't like her brand of art making. Hmm. I, I don't, I like, it, um... Huh, I wonder if it has something to do with your dislike of self-help. <laughs> well, it, it, you know, I, it's what I don't like is I don't like people... I don't like it when artists really insert themselves into the work in a way where, like, it's it draws attention to the artist. Sure. Um, and I feel that Yoko Ono's work... Um, listen, 
Yoko Ono has a much more thriving career than I do, so I'm not like trying to disparage her. But purely <laughs> from a critical standpoint, from my and the critic being me, I feel like when you see Yoko's Yoko Ono's work, all you are seeing is Yoko Ono, and I find that very discomforting. I don't want to see the artist. Um, that's fair. I mean, that, that's. I think that's actually maybe why I like it, just because her shrieking, uh, you know, the music she makes yeah. where she's shrieking. I mean, it's so disconcerting. It reminds me of like La Llorona, you know, the, the, the Mexican <laughs> folktale. Uh, and I think there's something, uh, I don't know. I mean, I guess you have to be full of yourself if you can put that out and be proud of it. But I love that. Like, yeah, because sometimes I think that's what I sound like when I talk or that's what I, you know what I mean? <laughs> so there's this, there's this like, oh, wow. Like she's just putting it out there. And I mean, in her performance uh, art, it's also very... She, she inserts herself in the middle and yeah. Has, yeah. violence come up. I think in a large way, I also just don't like performance art, mm. weirdly. Yeah. Um, maybe not weirdly, but... Yeah, it's, it's, it's performance is something. I want you to like just make something. I want, I want the artist to be alone in a room and they make something. And then that something goes into another room and then the artist goes away. Because <laughs> I just want to see the thing in a way. That's interesting. Um, Do you approach, I mean, you, you were talking about your art process, and that's very much how you create, right? Yeah, I, I work very much alone. <laughs> and, and then you run away after And then I, 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 well, I'm, so I'm having, I'm having my first solo show, actually, in the spring. Fantastic. So I, this is, this is on my mind, like, what, what do I put in this room? How are you approaching that? How are you making that decision? <sighs> I don't know, because I'm, I'm still making it. I collect images for paintings that I want to work from. Um, there are themes and ideas that I have, and I, I just sort of go from there. And I, my goal is, the show, the show is gonna be in March. I, my goal is in February to have a group of work done and for me to sort of then say like, these are the pictures that are in, these are the pictures that are out, these are the things that are meaningful to me, these are the things that are too meaningful to me. Mm, These are mm-hmm. things that are, you know, B-roll or something. Mm-hmm. I don't know. Um, but there's always things that are, like, somehow meaningful to me and that I want to present and as my work. Um, I mean, right now I'm working... There's this boy who I have um, had an, an infatuation with. Mm-hmm. And one day he sent me this picture which um I mean I feel like my eyes are like bulging even as I think about it <laughs> but I which I made it I like and I was like listen do you care if I make a painting of this and I, I was kind of thinking he'd be like I really don't want like this to be painted and put in a show but he was actually very gracious about it um so it's like here's this like dirty pic that a boy sent me but like it's so emblazoned on my mind that I need to make a painting of it but that's also addresses like a thing that I think a lot about in my work which is like being a queer artist I mean or maybe just being like a nearly 50 year old gay man like boners make their way into my paintings and like and this is this is a real question and a lot of my work is like how do you make a painting of a boner? <laughs> Even the word is hilarious. <laughs> and it not be about the boner. 
Hmm. You know, or like, it's almost like, it's like, what's, I, I can't remember, I don't know how to attribute this, like, old thing, like, but like, you know, you can't introduce a, a gun in the first act if it doesn't go off in the second act. Mm-hmm. And so it's sort of like, this is, you may be, yeah. But like, I, um, I think you're right. But it's sort of like, it's something I'm trying to do. Like, how do you make a painting of something? And have the painting not be about that something. Um, it kind of goes along with this, like, how I don't like myself to be in the work. I almost, I want to, like, ignore the subject as well to a degree. That's really interesting. Um, I want to see where that takes you. Okay. Well, you'll c- tune in in March. Thank you. Where is the show going to be? It's going to be at the Bureau, who I, for the, I, the aforementioned Bureau, who are great guys and who are very generously giving me a show. And where are they located? They are in the LGBT Center on 13th Street on the second floor. We'll be watching. I'm excited. People should be supporting them. They're the last bastion of LGBT bookstores and art spaces and performance spaces. They do so much great work. Why do you think that is? Do you think we are still in need of queer, gay spaces? Or do you think we're in a post-gender fluid space where something can happen at Barnes & Noble's and it's queer? Or something can happen at Starbucks? That's a great question. Um, well, I mean, I think that, like, to answer that question, there's first, like, well, what is queerness? And, you know, I've talked about this. I mean, in, in simplest terms, to me, queerness is queerness involves queering, I guess. And um, there's this, it doesn't have to do necessarily with like your sexual preference or even your gender per se, Um, but it has to do with, in my mind, there being this sort of like the standards, the norms, um, and, and just how do you disrupt that? Um, whether intentionally or not. I mean, for example, I mean, I'm not, I think I'm, in some ways, very average, sometimes on the verge of conservative in a way. Mm -hmm. Um, Maybe not, maybe I, maybe that's bullshit, I don't know. (laughs) But, um, but like, I know that like, when I enter a room of strangers, that like, oh, he's clearly gay. But that observation's not made because well, I mean, I don't know, but I'm assuming they've never seen me, like, suck a dick or something. But it's, like, it's, like, the little sweater over my shoulders, like, right now. <laughs> and so I think that queerness, even more than that, is just, like, a sort of, like, how... If you just sort of feel like, oh, the way I practice gender, the way that I live in the world doesn't conform with these sort of, like, this, this sort of baseline... And how you wear that. And I think that you can take it in a very performative way where you intentionally, like, magnify it. Uh, I mean, I think a lot of, like, of, like, queer burlesque shows in New York right now where it's just, like, or drag. It's just, like, okay, I have this way in which I, I'm different and I'm going to, like, explode it and make it a performance and make it a way of life. But it can also be more tacit to me. Um, and I think that in that way, yeah, it can take place at, at Barnes Noble. It can take place at Starbucks. Like, 
if the barista asks my name from my cup and I say Loretta, then that's a queer act. <laughs> I wish your name was Loretta. <laughs> I love the name Loretta. I have a I have a a life size Canada goose hunting decoy named Loretta. I want to have a daughter named Loretta or a son. Named <laughs> um, do you think queer is the new punk? Um, I don't know. Because as you were describing your notions of queerness, it kind of reminded me a little bit of the tenets of punk, right? This, this disruption. I guess. I mean, I feel like I almost can't answer that because I'm like the least punk person in the world. And so... <laughs> you and I, me both. And so... Um, but there's something I would, I would, I would, I would only say no though. because neither queerness nor punk are new. Mm. You know, and, um, and Oscar Wilde was queer. Mm. And I don't know, are punks queer? Bob Mould was punk and he's queer. So hmm. I don't know. I think that I think like any any sort of alternative lifestyles, any kind of um, creative worlds that there's going to be overlap. There's going to be a Venn diagram. There's going to be that intersection where like I am punk and and queer. You know, I, I have a nephew um, who is in this band and he still lives in Nevada, and he's in this sort of... I mean, I don't think he would... I don't know if he would classify his band as punk, but there's definitely elements of punk. And it's... He's straight, and it's with these other straight boys that he went to high school with or whatever. But there's definitely also something queer about them. Like, I look at his Instagram, and I'm like, you're, you're, there's, a, some, there's some faggotry going on here. But again, I mean, th- what's interesting is I don't think it has anything to do with his sexuality, per se. I don't think it has to do with his gender. But I think that, in a way, there is this really interesting intersection where he's totally comfortable wearing a dress or expressing, like, even if it's in a jokey way, intimacy with, like, these other these other bros. Sure. And I wonder, like, I mean, sometimes I'm like, is this mockery? Is this actually, like, homophobic? Mm. But I'm giving him the benefit of the doubt that it's just like, like, no, like, there is something punk and disrupting this sort of the machismo of, of... Well, I'm thinking about that question. Is it mockery? I guess having these... By the way, mockery is totally queer, I think. (laughs) Loretta. Sorry. Um... (laughs) I guess if there are these queer spaces, then there is no question if it's mockery, if it's whatever, right? I have a fond memory of ditching high school one day and going to a gay cafe in West Hollywood. Mm-hmm. Uh, when that was a thing, when there were gay cafes, and just sitting there and feeling like, oh, wow, like, how cool am I? Smoking a cigarette, drinking a coffee, instead of going to math class. And being able to meet people who were gay. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I remember once when... Uh, specific incident I met some guy who was visiting from London and he was listening to a CD player and he had um, Madonna remixes of erotica and I was like whoa like those are some good remixes aren't they amazing so (laughs) but you couldn't get that in the states at the time so it was like a really great uh intersection of like culture I guess Mm -hmm. and it's kind of I I don't want to say hard but it's a totally different experience now connecting to people in that way right uh because there aren't these queer within quote spaces you know, aside from that space, there are a few like, oh, you know, I remember in Chelsea, there used to be Big Cup. Do you remember Big Cup? Yeah, I was just making a joke about it. What uh, you it's, it's a long story, but I was like, I, 
I bet they have the old big cup sign in their apartment. <laughs> I was just like saying that, uh, talking about someone who was, who I felt was really, I mean, when I moved to New York in the late 90s, like 8th Avenue was like the gay runway in a way that's definitely not anymore. And Big Cup was the center of it, right? It was. And I was, I was talking about someone who I felt was really clinging to that era, was still kind of living that era and I was in in a mocking in a mocking way <laughs> in a hunty kind of way I was like oh I bet he probably in an I bet he bought way. the sign from Big Cup and hung it in his apartment but um <laughs> so I'm glad that you do what you're doing because in some way you're creating these intersections right these people these places where people can kind of connect and I hope so I hope so I mean that's that's one of the goals yeah do you feel that same drive or that same concern in your art practice um, no, I don't, weirdly. Even though I know that there is queerness in my work and that my work is, has an inherent, like, gay maleness to it, I, that's just, it's like incidental, it's like something I can, it's like, in the same way when I enter a room that people know I'm gay, I can't make a painting that doesn't somehow say that, I guess. But I don't want to like limit it to that. Although this show that I'm talking about having is at the LGBT center. So so I don't know. Maybe it's inescapable. I think that... But I also think that that is um, also interesting about queerness. Is that in the same way that you can explode it or make it a performance and really draw attention to it, there's also the element of if you are just an inherently queer person, you can't hide it. Or it gets, or it's hard. Or, I mean, really, I think it's very destructive to try to hide it. Do you think it's the same, along the same vein as being a Latino artist? Where it's inherently Latino, but it's not Latino. It doesn't have to be Latino, but it's still Latino. Do you know what I mean? I don't know. I mean, this just reminded me of, I used to work for a very prestigious gallery in Chelsea. I was like the front desk girl. <laughs> <laughs> Loretta. I was the Loretta. And there was this, um, this is like one of those moments where like, ooh, do I say these people's names? <laughs> anyway, there was this arc, there was the archivist who worked there. And I eventually became the archivist, but the archivist had this friend named Rachel. And I think subsequently I've always been dubious of people named Rachel. But, um, and Rachel would call like every day, like 20 times. And I would, because I answered the phone, and so I'd be passing her call through. And one day, after several weeks of this, Rachel actually manifested, like came into the gallery and came to the front desk. And I think that I have a very recognizable voice. And Rachel came in and was like, oh, is so-and-so here? I was like, oh, yeah, I'll, I'll let her know you're here. And she said, oh, are you Paul? And I said, yeah. And she's like, it's so funny. I just assumed you were white on the phone. And I was like, I was like, wow. Um, I mean, first of all, I just couldn't believe that this, this bitch had the audacity to say that. Like, who says that? What Even that if mean? you think it. And what does it mean? But I also, but now I kind of fear that that exists in my work. <laughs> that like, if someone's looking, if someone sees this painting of this of this boy who sent me the picture and I'm making the painting, like, and it's hanging in, on the wall, does someone think, oh, that, that was made by a Mexican? No, they, they're gonna say, oh, that was made by a faggot. <laughs> and so I don't, 
Latinaness is, is I like I, I've said this to you before. I think I have a more complicated relationship with being Latina than I do with being gay. Do you think it's more complicated or more resolved? Gayness, I, the, the Latino. It's it's. I think it's unresolved. I think it's an open, an open, an open question, an open wound, an open issue. <laughs> I don't know. I I I think that. I mean, I don't feel bad. Certainly about being Mexican, I'm I'm proud to be Mexican. But I think that being Mexican, also, and I know you've experienced this, being from the West Coast is different than being on the East Coast. Absolutely. I feel that if people who are not part of the queer community have a critique of my queerness, it's about being queer. Whereas I feel like there are people in the queer community, people in the queer community have no issue with how I practice being queer. Um, or maybe they do, but I don't hear it. I feel like there are people that definitely have in the Mexican or Latino community throughout, well, there are non-Latina people who have an issue with Latinoness, but there's also people within the Latino community who I think have a critique or have expressed a critique of how I have been called a bad Mexican, as, as, as you know, and I'm like, well, uh, you know, talk to my parents, because <laughs> This is what they made. And I think there are ways in which I I try at times to remedy that. I think it's something that I am kind of thinking about in my work right now. Like, should my work sort of announce a Mexican-ness? Hey, why so quiet? Let me know your take on the talk. Go to studioconfessions.com and reach out. Or even better, leave a review on whichever platform you're listening on. It goes a long way. Want to see some visuals on the essence of the conversation? Go to Instagram and follow the show at StuCon Podcast to see some shareable quotes from the conversation and more. You can also follow me at Art Engineer to see some of my work, an inside look at my creative practice and studio. Now let's get back to the conversation. I think I'm a lot about it myself. Uh, first of all, like I mentioned earlier, I didn't consider myself Chicano until I moved to New York. Yeah. Because prior to coming to New York, all of the Chicanos and air quotes that I had met would dress like Frida. This mm-hmm. is before the Frida craze. They would dress like Frida, um, normally marry white men, mm-hmm. and their kids' names would be like Guatemoc if they were really white, mm-hmm. or Johnny if they were brown, mm-hmm. and they wouldn't speak Spanish. Not that that matters. Right. But it, it just felt... This... My Spanish is awful. And that's fine. <laughs> I'll judge you in private. <laughs> but it felt like there was... There was a, a forcefulness to the Chicanoness to hide other things, mm-hmm. right? As you were talking about not calling yourself an artist or, or arriving at a place to be an artist because you felt there was a sense of responsibility. Mm-hmm. It sounds like there's also this chargeness, right, to call yourself a Chicano, to own the Mexicanness because there's certain expectations and responsibilities. Yeah. Well, and it's also like what one calls themselves is different than what other people can call me mm. that I take comfort with. That's pretty powerful. And even other, you know, like in the world of hookup apps and stuff, like Scruff or, or whatever, I, it is not unusual for some complete stranger to, like, open with hola papi. And it always pisses me off because I'm like, hey, I'm not your poppy or anyone's poppy. And also that's making a lot of assumptions about who I am, that I would want that or that I embrace that. And not that I, I mean, that sounds wrong because it's not that I don't embrace being Latino, but like, 
but your fetishization, yeah. it makes a lot of assumptions, you know, about who I am. And I don't, I don't like it, both as a queer and as a Latino. I think it's so problematic also because, like you said, there's a certain, it fetishizes it, right? Like, yeah. it's almost like you go to, these apps are like going to like a ice cream shop. What flavor do you want? Well, yeah. And, but, and this is the thing is that at some point you've got to resolve that I am a flavor and that the people who choose this flavor are people who like that flavor and they've had that flavor before and they have like that flavor in their freezer at home and, and they seek out that flavor Yeah, and they've had that flavor before. But it is weird when it's like, you know, there's, I'm more than a flavor. I don't know. It's something, but listen, like if I'm like into you, you're probably like a gangly white dork. And you know, if you go through, which is also my history. It's like, um, as my friend Charlie said, you know, they all come from the same factory. <laughs> so I'm guilty. I'm guilty as well. But somehow it's like different. And I, and this is, this is worthy of a conversation all its own. It's somehow acceptable for, I don't know, is it more acceptable for me as a Mexican to fetishize like white gangly dorks? Yes, it is. <laughs> then for just like a, there's no reverse then, racism, then, right? Yeah, just yeah. like there's no reverse racism. Yeah. We, have, we have no leverage. So. I mean, that's actually one of the, like, I mean, don't you find being Latino that when there's, like, when people talk about the tension between, like, white America and black America, that, like, um, <laughs> that, like, being Latino, somehow you're like, oh, I'm just going to stay out of it. Right, yeah, absolutely. <laughs> and I think that's my biggest problem. I feel absolutely invisible in certain conversations, yeah. which can be comfortable, yeah. but it can also be super de- detrimental, right? Um, it's such a weird uh, thing to think about in 2019, you know? Because you can go to really dark places if you think about it. I, yeah. mean, I think living in this environment that's so privileged, Mm-hmm. and seeing these couples with their beautiful little kids, blonde hair, blue eyes, mm-hmm. free as a bird, I can't help but think of the brown baby counterparts and how they're in cages, and that's okay because somewhere or the other, they're not equal. Right. You know, And that, yeah. that's a dark place to be. Yeah. One of my many sort of projects is uh, in collaboration with another, another really great creative person um, named Doug. I... Um, do the sort of like high holiday like Lent and Advent decorations for my church. We've been really talking about this as as Advent is approaching and we're getting the nativity scenes out and you know um, there's this really great uh, priest who teaches at Fordham. His name is Brian Massengale and he writes and, and speaks a lot about whiteness in the Catholic Church the, and the presumption of whiteness and how how as Catholics do we feel about the treatment of other Catholics particularly at the border mm. and do we think of like when we see the kids in cages do we think of them as like oh those are other Catholics I mean assuming that they are mm-hmm. which they probably are because they're coming from Latin right. America and how are we them not just how are we them as Latinos, how are we them as people not from, you know, not, I don't know how I want to say this, as immigrants, as other immigrants, very likely, and as Catholics. And 
it's such an interesting topic to me, especially living in a city like New York where yeah. there is this kind of like blatant privilege. And it's, it's just scary. I, um, I recently went on a tour of uh, Greenwood Cemetery, which is my neighbor. <laughs> fantastic place. Is his name Bill the Butcher? Daniel Day-Lewis's character in, in um, Gangs, of Gangs of New York. Something the Butcher. Oh, wow. uh, and he, the actual person who is horrible and like organized this sort of political gang that would like go down to the docks as like Italian and Irish immigrants would come into America and like literally throw rocks at them. Who, you know, he murdered a number of people and was eventually murdered himself, I believe. Anyway, he is sort of like a historical racist. <laughs> and he was in an unmarked grave at Greenwood. And by the way, like, this is like my version of the story. You know, forgive me if it's not historically accurate. Unmarked grave at Greenwood. And when the movie was made, Martin Scorsese paid to have this enormous tombstone put at his grave, which is there and grand. And when I was on this tour, it people have gone to this grave and are putting like American flags on it. There was also like broken beer bottles, like and like cans of Budweiser. And even like people were putting stones on the tombstone, so I assumed they're Jewish. And I'm just like, why are why? Why in 2019 are we paying reverence to this person who like violently uh you know, persecuted the then immigrants, the, the Italians, the Irish, and the Catholics, specifically, very anti-Catholic. I, I don't know, it's just shocking. Why it's, do you think that is, though? Uh, I mean, it's complicated, right? It's complicated. <laughs> I, I, don't, I don't know. I mean, you know, first of all, it's weird, because this is, like, my neighborhood. And my neighborhood is largely Latino. There's um, a lot of Muslim people in my neighborhood. My landlords are Muslim and they're lovely. I don't know. I find it, I find it shocking. I don't know. I, 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 there are people with hate in their heart and that's tragic. You know, and I also think a lot of it is so emboldened by Hollywood, you know? Well, and our president. And our president. But (laughs) but I feel, and, and I don't even think it necessarily always comes from a racist place or from a place of hate. But in the same way that Bonnie and Clyde, in the same way that Manson, you know, is kind of, you know, glorified or not even glorified, but just turned into icons by these movies. Mm -hmm. People believe like, oh, how glamorous to get away with all this shit, you know, in the same way that people are dumb enough to believe uh i was i saw this movie called hail satan where they talk about (laughs) which is a political movie uh, of all things um where they talk about people's hardcore connection to the ten commandments statue that is problematic because it's in uh Mm -hmm. it's in in government property Yeah, yeah, yeah government buildings and where did that come from that didn't come from some priest it didn't come it hasn't been there since it was, the Ten Commandments were written. Mm-hmm. It was a marketing ploy for the Ten Commandments, the movie. <laughs> and then people are like, oh, yay, right, you know? So there's this naivete that people have that is so, that's misguided by this 
Hollywood machine. And I mean, not, not I'm from LA, so I feel like I've, I've been privy to it for a very long time. Um, but yeah, I feel like people buy into these lies. It's right. so easy to buy into these lies. Well, and I think it's very easy for some people, maybe not even, even easy, but... Almost unquestioned, really. I think there are people who are anti-things. There are people who, like, don't like immigrants. There are people who don't like gays. There are people who don't like Jews. There are people who don't like... You know, who are anti-something. Sure. But then what are they for? Right. Well, it's so much easier to say, I don't right. like gays or I have an uncle. <laughs> right? Right. <laughs> right. And it's just like, I think that if your guiding star is the opposition of something, then, then there's... A hopelessness there because you're not striving toward anything um, and maybe that's the thing maybe there's just hopelessness absolutely I can speak with you for hours <laughs> in wrapping up what is a book that you feel has given you some insight or wisdom into your creative practice and it doesn't have to be an art book oh my gosh I'm not prepared for this question that's why I asked <laughs> I don't know, a few things are tumbling around. The thing that's kind of rising to the surface, in The Age of Innocence, there's this amazing paragraph where, you know, there's... The woman has realized that her husband has been having an affair with her cousin. And, again, if you're, like, an authority on Age of Innocence, forgive me if I'm getting this wrong, <laughs> the husband... But the co the cousin is problematic. She's, I believe, divorced. And there's, like, a past there. But the wife knows the husband's going to see see her for real, legit, like, family reason. And But the wife knows that they're also having an affair. There's this paragraph where the wife gives the husband a look. And then there's this page-long paragraph about, like, what this glance means what the husband understands from the look, what the wife means, what the expectations are, what has to unfold. But none of it is said. She just gives a look and lays it all out with a single glance. And I think that that is something... I mean, first of all, like, I think we're talking about formal writing. And, I mean, it's just, like, the most beautiful passage and so smart and so, like, efficient and lovely. But also, it's... It's something, I think, aspirational um, for an artist to be able to, like, make a gesture, do something, but make a thing that also is so much more, that is, like, that is really broad, that allows so much to be communicated, um, and is just rich, and, and, and you can tell just by reading it that like so much love was poured into making it but also that because of that I guess it just gives you so much back and I think that's something one should aspire to as an artist that sounds very generous thank you so much thank you that's it thanks for listening if you enjoyed what you heard feel inspired and triggered from something you heard please share it you are the candle that can light endless flames with what moves you I am Luis Martin, the art engineer, sharing with you what moves me.